We're going to be reading from Luke 1, 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Good morning, everyone. So we are starting a new series uh, called The Songs of Christmas. And, um, you know, Christmas is an interesting time because uh, you hear a lot of music. You really can't escape it. Uh, we don't just sing a lot of music here at church. It's, it's everywhere that you go. Um, it's also a time where it, it's almost like as a nation we kind of hang up our, um, we suspend our taste for a season. I mean, there's more Christmas silliness in songs than, than anywhere else. And if you work in retail, you know, where you've got these things on loop, I mean, wow, God bless you. I'm praying that you're, you're, you, you know, you won't go insane. Um, I, I worked in retail for a while. It just kind of like gets into your head. And I, I'm not really sure when some of these silly songs became our national soundtrack, you know, um, you know, last Christmas I gave you my heart. You know, this, this poor woman never learns, does she? Just, you know, just dependent enabling, like, what, what is wrong with you? Um, my kids all agree that um, Baby, It's Cold Outside is like the creepiest song ever. And um, yeah, so the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at some higher quality stuff, uh, Lord willing. This is uh, Songs of Christmas, and they're all going to be from the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel writers, Luke is, is my favorite uh, super smart guy, physician, historian, like he set out to interview and record in order the songs of, or excuse me, the, the tradition of scripture. And he did it so that we would, we would know that Christ, that Christ is God. And uh, Luke is really cool. And a couple of things that he captures is these songs of the church. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings one. We're going to be hearing that next week uh, that Brandon will be uh, bringing to us. Uh, today is Zechariah, and uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll be listening to the angels' songs. There's actually one other. His name is Simeon, but we're not going to get to him this year. And uh, so I hope as we spend some quality time with them, we're going to come away with more profit than um, learning that it's a marshmallow world in the winter or something like that. So Zechariah's song. Some of the background was read to you just now, but not all of it. Who is Zechariah? He's a priest. Husband of Elizabeth, uh, who is the, the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Zechariah is a, an expectant Jewish man. He is waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And he is said to be righteous 
and blameless. And our narrative picks up in a very, very unusual time for him. Uh, He was doing something that was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity when God's messenger, the messenger, the angel Gabriel, uh, meets him in the temple and informs him that a miraculous son was going to be born to him. You know, it's miraculous because um, he and his wife, Elizabeth, were very old. And Zechariah is skeptical, and he points out the obvious. How, how shall I know this? So he, he says to this angel of God, give me a sign. And then he points out what is quite obvious. He said, because um, my wife and I, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well, Gabriel doesn't take that very kindly. He takes it as unbelief, and he gives him a sign, striking him mute until these things should occur. So nine months or so of muteness. And uh, once the child is born, and, and Mike just read it for us there, uh, his, his tongue is opened up, his mouth is loosened, and what pours out is poetry, this song that we have. And uh, maybe you get to really think a lot while you're mute for nine months, and uh, he had a lot to say. Now, we don't have a lot in common with him, some of us even less than others. I mean, so Zechariah is very old, he's Jewish. He's a priest. Uh, he's living in the first century AD. But we'd, we'd have a huge mistake to think that he has nothing to say for us because there should be a way in which we sing Zechariah's song this morning. And so as we, not out loud and, and with music, but we're going to kind of learn to sing this song. We're going to consider it for a while. Now, you're going to be able to do that a little bit better if you have it open in front of you. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. Um, and then if you don't actually have a copy of the word, there should be a few on the back tables there that you're welcome to, um, when you go out, grab one and keep it with our compliments. So why would we sing Zechariah's song? Well, one of the reasons we do it is so that we will become like he is, alert to God's movement. Verses 67 and 68 say, And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God, of Israel. Now, this verse represents something of the end of a journey for Zechariah. He wasn't always ready to to burst into this spirit-filled prophecy. It took some doing to get him there. In the narrative, we find out that he one of the things about him is that he is he is old. Okay? And he is on the back half of his career. Now, um, old people have many, many strengths, but I think they would be the first to tell you that flexibility may not be one of them. You know, we say that they're set in their ways, you know, kind of stubborn, um, they kind of know the pattern and everything, and uh, really, they, they've kind of earned it, you know, like, it, they don't really care what you think so much anymore, right? But when Zechariah ran as the angel, he was on the back half of his career, he was on the back half of his three score, ten years, and, um, and he was not very, very flexible. He had kind of mapped out his career. He knew what he was doing. And the angel, when the angel shows up, just so happened to catch him in a very unusual time, something that he had been preparing his entire life to do, and that was to bring the blood into the holy of holies. One of the things that we learn about Zechariah early in the narrative is that he was a priest, and he was in the eighth division of Abijah, 
Now, I don't know how much a division was for the priests. I, I maybe should have looked into that a little bit further. But I know in the armies, a division is, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people. And so chances are Zechariah was only going to get to do this once in his life. And uh, it was the pinnacle of his career, probably his last act before retirement. And I would imagine that as he did this very sacred ritual, that every movement was scripted. I would imagine that he had replayed this in his mind hundreds of times. And so it was not the time to improvise. So when he goes into the Holy of Holies and he finds that he's not alone, there's a heavenly messenger there before him, uh, he is understandably caught off guard. And this messenger is saying, new assignment, new assignment, Zechariah, from on high. And what comes out of him is skepticism. Now, this is kind of like us in many ways. Like when, when you kind of know what you're doing, you get a little bit locked on to something. You kind of know the script and, um, and everything else just gets filtered out. Zechariah was locked on to fulfilling his service and not dying. Because, yes, that was a very real possibility if you entered the Holy of Holies unprepared. We've written our script, we're dutifully following it, and then we find someone or something in our story that we did not expect. And our reaction may be like his. Earlier in the narrative, his first reaction was it was troubled in spirit. Okay, he was, he was troubled, his face clouded up, and then it said he was afraid. And then what comes out is skepticism. You know, what have you accepted as the norm in your life, that if God messed with it, it would seriously derail you. Maybe you've, you've been in a, you know, a relationship, and in retrospect, you realize that it was a little bit built on externals. Maybe you were you know, attracted to each other, had some stuff in common, and uh, you make this commitment, and then something happens where they do something or you do something that makes you or them realize like, wow, I don't know who this person is. Like, it's almost like I was, I was living with a stranger or something. At least there's this part of them that I don't understand. And you're terrified and you're tempted to bolt because that's how you've always dealt with these types of revelations. Well, maybe God brought this into your life because he is about to move and he's going to make you face something. Or maybe you're pretty secure in the way that you view the world. It's, it's worked for you thus far. And then an anomaly crops up that makes you begin to asking all kinds of questions. And maybe you're questioning everything you know, and you're just feeling very, very unsettled. Could it be that that is God and he is forcing you to move deeper into your understanding and faith? That could be pretty terrifying, but will you respond with skepticism or faith? Or maybe you're living a pretty good life. You know, you're pretty far into it. You know, it's had its moments, but you know who you are. You know what you're doing. You know what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. You've done your financial planning. You've left your legacy. Your script is pretty much set. But then there's this niggling feeling that there's something left for you to do. And it keeps coming up. And you've got this idea that maybe you need to use your lifetime of expertise for some cause, or maybe you need to divert some of your financial planning and legacy to support something, or maybe you need to take the first part of your retirement to do something for God, and it just won't leave you alone. 
Perhaps you've had a sin that you have covered for years, or you've had a personality flaw that you have been coping with for your entire life. And then for whatever reason, because of a relationship or a discovery, it is brought out, and all of a sudden you're having to face it and deal with it. Has it occurred to you that that revelation may be the angel standing by the altar, and it is God saying, I am about to move in your life, and I'm going to move, move you to a greater place of faith? Or maybe you have a gaping experiential hole in your life. Zechariah and Elizabeth had one. It was an empty cradle. I think they had long since stopped praying for a child. They had accepted it as their story, just the way that it's going to be. And then God reveals to you that the thing that you would change about yourself or the thing that you would change about your life is the very thing that God is going to use to glorify himself and to make people wonder. You know, when God does that, when he speaks to us and he says, okay, I'm about to do something you didn't expect. If we don't take the hint, God is patient, but he does have ways to speak louder. And when he does, we may not like it. In Zechariah's instance, it was nine months of enforced muteness, silence. Life got a lot more complicated for Zechariah and his family because he was skeptical about God's plan. And honestly, I don't know what that would look like for God to speak louder into my life or what it would look like for him to speak louder into your life, but undoubtedly it's much better to just be on the lookout and receptive to what God is doing rather than make him underscore it to me in some way. Now, thankfully, Zechariah moves past his unbelief into a deeper faith, and that's what this first verse represents, verse 68. We witness him full of the Holy Spirit, blessing God and prophesying. Zechariah's song reminds us to be alert for God's movement, even when it seems impossible, even in the most unlikely time. And we want to respond rightly when he does so, with praise as Zechariah does. And so as we get into the heart of what he says, we learn not just to be alert, but also what he's doing through these verses. In 68 through 75, we see a praise portion. It starts out with, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is a praise song in which he recounts what God is doing. Now, as a priest and a devout man, when he opens up his mouth, uh, his knowledge of Scripture is, is amazing. He has a fantastic grasp of the big picture. What this reminds me of is that God uses both of our gifts and our limitations. He used Zechariah's gifts. He was a priest. He had a great knowledge of the Word of God. He used his position so that everybody was watching, so that when he came out, that he was speaking to them in an unusual way, as only Zechariah could have done. But also, God uses his limitations, his and Elizabeth's barrenness to bless people. What Zechariah does for us is locate us in time. You know, when you go into the mall and you park, you know, wherever there happens to be parking and you walk into a new mall, what's the first thing you do? Well, 
you go to that kiosk and you, you look at the map and you find the biggest box store near you. And then what do you do? You look for the arrow that says, you are here. Well, that's what Zechariah's song is. It's a big, you are here in the salvation story. Now, not knowing where you are in history is dangerous. And it's something that every generation, I think, struggles with, but perhaps especially our generation right now. We tend to think that we live above history, that it has little to do with us, that maybe we have evolved past it, that its lessons were for people before, but we don't have to listen. And that's really a hazardous way to live. I do wonder if some of the outbreak of anxiety and mental health that we are experiencing on a wide scale, some of the not knowing where we are, the groundlessness, comes from this trying to live above history. An author I enjoy calls it not being lost in the middle of nowhere, but being lost in the middle of no when. We don't know who we are, when we live, or how to relate to it. Zechariah is going to help us out with that. And we could say he's had some quality time to reflect on it. So if we ask Zechariah, okay, Zechariah, what time is it? First of all, it is Messiah time. And we see this in verse 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It is time that God visited and redeemed his people. I want you to notice the past tense. He has visited and he has redeemed his people. In Zechariah's mind, because the Messiah has been conceived, this has already happened because God is on the move. It's as good as done. A really cool picture of the Messiah is here. And you see it in that phrase, the horn of salvation being raised. Now, this is one of those illustrations. It's just, it's fascinating. We first see the horn of salvation in Deuteronomy 33. What you'll see in this verse is the old patriarch, Jacob. So you've got um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So one of the first patriarchs is blessing the tribes of Joseph. And he says that they are going to be like a majestic bull, thrusting aside all of their enemies with, with, a, with a sweep of its powerful, protected head. Now, if you're a, a city person and you've never actually seen a bull or an ox... Um, you've not been to a state fair and seen one of these things. It's easy to, when you see them, understand why even lions don't mess with these things when they put their horns toward them. They are impressive, powerful beasts. Now, you transfer that picture over to a warrior. Think of maybe even a warrior with a horned helmet. I mean, it may draw to mind that opening scene of, you know, the Lord of the Rings when Sauron comes out, you know, and it's just like, it is this imposing figure that no one can stand up to. That's the Messiah. And for an oppressed people, this sounds really good. Now, what you got to know about this is that it is a political picture. Zechariah is hoping, and we see this in verse 71, that they would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And so there is a political piece to this where Zechariah says this Messiah, this horn of salvation is going to come free us from our enemies for a really noble reason. 
so that we can serve God in peace. Now, what Zechariah doesn't present here and what he probably doesn't know is that as God is visiting and redeeming his people, the political piece of this was going to have to wait. Luke Acts reveals that the political part of redemption is delayed until Jesus returns because the nation did not respond to the offer. Jesus laments this fallout and this lack of response in several places, and here's where it really comes to a head the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus weeps over the fall of Jerusalem because they rejected him. So although the political part is delayed, in which the the enemies are gotten rid of so they can serve him in peace, the spiritual aspect is not. Verse 77 and verse 78, if you look at it, mention several things that are in play right now. John is going to give the knowledge of salvation the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God and the sunrise shall visit us on high. So according to Zechariah, it's Messiah time. It's time that a messianic deliverance in which the political part gets delayed, but the spiritual aspect comes into full play. It is a time of messianic deliverance. It's also a time where God begins to fulfill promises promise fulfillment time. And we see this in verse 70 and 72. We see a reference to holy prophets of old, speaking of salvation from enemies and those who hate them. And so, as we mentioned, that's a national, um, a national promise. However, it also speaks of mercy and covenants remembered. And I want to zero in on two of those covenants that we benefit from right now. So two of the most important covenants, and and you've got to understand them in order to understand Scripture, is the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And if you're not familiar with them, you can read about them in Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7. The first, the Abrahamic covenant. God makes promises to this patriarch. He promises a male heir, a great nation, land for the descendants. These promises are mainly national for Israel, but in this promise is also included a universal. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this is fulfilled in a Messiah, which is what this account is about. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul gives a tightly reasoned explanation of how a partial hardening of Israel would bring salvation to the Gentiles. The second covenant, the Davidic covenant, Abraham's kingly descendant, David, is promised six things by God. A name, which is interesting, we're talking about him, right? Very, very few people do not know about David. A place for Israel, rest from their enemies, and a dynasty of offspring. But then there are these two promises, and I'll put them on the screen. God promises him an eternal kingdom where his throne will be established forever. Well, forever is a long time. Promises that he will adopt him as a royal son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You know, these verses are fascinating because initially they were fulfilled by David's son Solomon who built the house of God and God blessed Solomon in a very unique way with wisdom. He was a father to him, and he also disciplined him by splitting his kingdom. However, only Jesus can extend the dormant line of David and bring it about forever. 
He is the Son of God, and he was chastised for our sins with stripes, no less, as if he had committed iniquity. Now, let me direct your attention to verse 72. What do we see here? To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What Zechariah is singing about here is mercy and faithfulness. Mercy and faithfulness brought to us by a Messiah. Zechariah recognized that the birth of Jesus and the ministry of his song meant these things, mercy and faithfulness. And in order to locate ourselves in time, we have to say, realize that this is a time of mercy and faithfulness to us. Do you doubt that this time of redemption is for you? Well, it's for you. That is, if you are part of all the families of the earth that will be blessed. The fact that we are sitting here listening to this testimony from Zechariah is a blessing to you if you will listen to it. And the alternative is to try to live as if you were above time. To take a look at this history of salvation and say, yeah, no, I'm just going to surf above it. This does not apply to me. And if so, you are living in ignorance. But the song of Zechariah can make you wiser if you will hear it. So we need to know the time and get grounded. We are here. The Messiah has come. Forgiveness is here. Promises are being fulfilled to those who will hear and receive it. We sing Zechariah's song not just to alert ourselves of God's movement and not just to say, like, you are here in salvation history, but also we sing it to welcome the day spring. There's a really important shift in verses 75 to 76. It moves from praise to prophecy. Praise begins in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. But in 76, Zechariah turns his attention to prophecy and he speaks to his son John and says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's looking at his baby boy and telling him what he will be, what his job is. And John has got a a huge part in this story. But then we're going to see a migration to where it begins talking about this visitor from on high. And we've got to make that shift too. We've got to get to a place where we see ourselves in history, but we must get to Jesus who can guide us to peace. Now, what is John's part in all this? It's a big part. Verses 76 and 78 show us that John prepares the way for what God is going to do. He's got quite the position. Prophet of the Most High. A herald of God. Make way. Make way is his job. To prepare the way for God by giving knowledge of salvation. In other words, letting all the people know that God is on the move and that the kingdom is coming in. His primary tool was preaching and baptism. Now, if you haven't met John the Baptist, he is, he is a colorful character. Um, people may have even said he was an exhibitionist. He wasn't, but I mean, the, he was in, you know, the way he was clothed, what he ate, where he preached. And, and his main two tools was preaching and baptism. The baptism was a baptism for repentance, It wasn't the right that brought it about. It was the repentant heart of the people. And they were getting ready for what God was about to do. John was a megaphone. He would thunder to the crowds who came to be baptized. 
You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear, Bear fruit in keeping of repentance. And he just pinned people's ears back. But he was just the opener. He was the pre-show. The main act is in verse 78 and 79. And that is because Jesus is the day spring. Now John may have given knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins, but Jesus, because of the tender mercy of God, was the sunrise that visited, visited us from on high. His arrival to us is what you could call Operation Mercy. Mercy appears several times in these verses, in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to the Father, and then verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. This is mercy to us. Notice the uh, adjective in verse 78. It says tender mercy. The adjective that's added to this word is a really interesting one. It literally means bowels guts. And it speaks of a deep welling up, deep-seated compassion. So if you ask the question, what caused God the Father to send the Son? A deep gut-level compassion for our state, which is what? According to the text, it is darkness and the shadow of death. Things are pretty bleak. Now, that either sounds right to you or will at some point. At this point in Israel's history, there is nobody who would have disagreed with this. They were in a period that is known as the the Second Temple Period, and it basically goes from 516 B.C. to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem is destroyed. And this was just a turbulent time in Israel's history. They were a political football. So, In had come Persia and Greece and Egypt and Syria and then the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans and finally Rome. Now things weren't so bad under Alexander the Great, but then there was another king that rose up during that time that some of you may have heard, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and the Jews referred to him as the madman. It was during this time that the high priest became Um, that position became a political football as well. There was intrigue and assassinations, and it basically undermined the people's confidence in the priesthood. And things kind of came to a head when Antiochus sent a general and, and ordered them to sacrifice a pig on the altar. And it was at that time that there were these five brothers named the Maccabees rose up, and they killed the general who came to force that, and they fled into the wilderness and had this rebellion And uh, they ruled for about five years. Before that five years was over, though, every one of them had been killed either on the battlefield or through treachery. And the final one was killed by his son-in-law and brought in the rule of someone called the Hasmoneans. And these were Jewish leaders that were basically puppets. And they were cruel. They would do whatever it took to hang on to authority. There's one point where one of the rulers crucified 800 Pharisees in Jerusalem in order to keep their power. Well, finally, Rome invaded and eventually installed Herod. And yes, this is the Herod that was over when Jesus came. So this was Zechariah's world. So yeah, bleak. Into this world came the Messiah. So looking at the world and the darkness that they were all sitting in, it's not surprising that they use the the term the rising sun from on high. 
Why was the figure, the Messiah, the rising sun? Because of the darkness. And what does he do? Gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guides our feet into the way of peace. Notice that Zechariah says he guides our feet into the way of peace. Because Zechariah was struggling for the very soul of the priesthood and he knew how bad it was. So how would Jesus' ministry give light and guidance? He did it by his very coming. He did it by his teaching. He did it by his ministering. You you look at that phrase, sitting in darkness. You know, that just kind of calls to mind a group of people in hostile territory, sitting around a smoky campfire, and everything outside the light of that campfire is terror to them. Unknown land. And the bravest among them stands up and makes a torch and goes out into the darkness to face whatever it is that terrifies them. And we would call this person a hero. The one who faces what terrifies us, possibly at the risk of his own safety. You know, we've seen countless heroic tales on the big screen. And they never get old. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, Luke or Harry Potter or or whoever, the Hobbit, like... The one that goes out and faces the terror, it just doesn't get old. If you had to ask what makes the ideal hero, Jesus would qualify. From humble origins, unassuming but full of divine glory. Kind, gentle, brave, never at a loss, had time for the common man or woman, unexpected in his ways, humorous, sacrificial. And as the son who rose from on high, he didn't have to get the campfire light. He actually was the light. He carried light with him. And wherever he went, he began pushing back darkness. So that as his followers, we take our torches and we follow after him. So Jesus Christ, the hero, by his very coming, was our light He also was our light and our guide through his teaching. If you've read the Gospel, John, another one of the writers, he recounts the story of a leading teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. And if you remember Nicodemus, he came and met Jesus at a certain time of day. When was it? At night. He met the light of the world at night. And they have this conversation. And Nicodemus is having a hard time picking up what Jesus is putting down. And Jesus scolds him. And says, why can you as a teacher of Israel not understand what I'm saying? And then Jesus kind of tips his hand as to why his teaching was so revolutionary. And just listen to John 3, Jesus' words. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you don't recognize our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus says that his words are heavenly and that he got them firsthand. You know, when you encounter a primary source like this telling you heavenly words, you better pay attention. And that's what Nicodemus was not doing at the time. Jesus told us he brought light and guidance through his teaching, but also through his ministering. You know how Jesus went about all over the place doing the works of his father. It's interesting that the apostle John calls them not miracles, but signs. 
And why are they signs? Because they are teaching and because they are pointing people toward the Father. You know, if you let this hero fight for you, if you will receive his teaching, if you will take his coming as the one who's going to guide you into peace, if you let his miracles point you to God, what will be the result? You'll be guided out of darkness and brought into peace, which is what? It's God's way. Peace is a whole and harmonious relationship with God. And we desperately, desperately need that because we are disintegrated people. And there's no higher thing in the world for a creature to know him, to love with him, love him, to live with him, and then to obey him. To know him, love him, live with him, and obey him. That is the whole end of mankind. And so when we sing Zechariah's song, we are welcoming the day spring. And so we're entering into a, a Christmas season where we're supposed to think about what the importance of it is. So who should sing Zechariah's song? The comfortable. The comfortable for, should sing this song. One's going through the motions. You know, there are songs of praise that are yet to be sung. There are roles and parts of the story that you have yet to play, and you need to be alert to the possibility that God can startle you in your daily life and move you in a different direction. Zechariah's song reminds us that God's plan is on the move, and he is going to pull you into it if you allow him to do so. And he's going to do so in a way that is very specific to your set of circumstances. He took Zechariah's limitations and his losses and his gifts and his strengths and he used him in this time. This season, will you say, I am watching for God's movement in my life. The comfortable need to be alert. The lost, you know, the ones who have never found where they are in salvation history, where to you it's been just kind of like a train that's been whipping by, and you're saying, like, I'm hearing people witness of this, but I, I feel like I'm not on that train. You need to be on that train. Or maybe you've just forgotten about the, the promises that God has fulfilled and need to be encouraged by that. If you resonate with that feeling of being lost in the no-win, and you say, like, I, I don't really know what has gone before. I don't know what my place is in it. If you live in dread that whatever it is that, that took everything that came before you down is going to take a bite out of your surfboard and drag you down underneath the waves, you need to be aware that the prophets have spoken, history has witnessed, and that is the time right now that the Messiah has come and that he is fulfilling promises. You also need to be aware that there are more promises coming down the pike. You know, remember I said that the political side of this thing where Jesus comes and sets all things right and shakes up the world order, that that was delayed. It won't be delayed forever. It is coming. And at that point, it will be too late to embrace him as your hero. You will stand before him as your judge and give an account. And so I plead with you today that if you have just been letting the train of history go past you and you're saying, like, I have not identified with that, you need to do that today, and you do so by asking, believing, and he will save you. Now is the day of mercy and faithfulness. 
Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Don't make the mistake that Israel did when they first encountered him. Finally, who else needs this song? Those who are in need of a hero of wholeness. The hero story doesn't resonate with us by accident. It is witness that there is something deep in me that is profoundly broken, and it needs rescuing. What if there is one who, when you take the idea of hero as far down as you can go, is the hero, the one who is going to save humanity from its hopelessness, from sitting in darkness and the uncertainty cast by being in the shadow of death, by showing them the way to God, by being the way to God. That's the day spring, and we need him. So who needs this song? Well, I need this song. I need this song, and I think you need this song as well. Let's pray. So Father of history, the one who felt deep compassion for us so that you sent the day spring, we ask now that you would shine his light on our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would get us ready for your movement, that you would make us humble before you. I pray for those who are lost and have not yet found their way, that today the light of the day spring would shine on their soul, that they would be saved. And I pray that we would prepare our hearts in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.